Hello and welcome to the latest episode of TechCNC's podcast, Global Thinking. On the 7th of July, Boris Johnson resigned. The process of finding his successor has now nearly reached its conclusion. Conservative MPs have selected their two favourite candidates, Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss, and the decision has been handed over to Conservative Party members, who will now vote on who they would like to see lead their party and become the UK's next Prime Minister. Today, I'm joined by KCNC's Dominic Reynolds, a director in our London office. Dom has a background in journalism, having worked as a TV correspondent and presenter, and so he knows what it takes to appear in front of a demanding audience at a critical moment. It's worth highlighting that we're not going to be talking about politics or policy today. We're not analysing the merits of either candidate on the basis of their political beliefs, but we are talking about the ways that they communicate, specifically with reference to the recent televised debate hosted by the BBC. So welcome, Dom. Great to have you with us today. Although her campaign got off to a rocky start, Liz Truss is currently the bookie's favourite. She was judged to have performed quite poorly in the first televised debate earlier this month. But how different was she in front of that audience at the BBC studio? I thought she seemed a lot more at ease. Do you think that's fair? Yeah, I think she was much more in control of what she was doing and seemed to approach it with more of a game plan. Now, as you say, we're staying away from the politics. That's uh, not what we do here. Plenty of other places to get that sort of thing. But on the way that they communicated, it struck me that Liz Truss had probably done exactly the sort of thing that we would recommend uh, clients do in that sort of situation. She had gone back, worked out what the central kind of core of what it is she was trying to communicate was, and she kept coming back to that. There was a sense that there was a really coherent set of ideas around connecting tax to policy on immigration, to Britain's place in the world, that all fitted together. And that made it a lot easier for her to be fluent, to be in control, to to look a bit more authoritative and on the front foot. than it had done previously. So I think there's a kind of a good lesson there that sometimes making it simpler, um, not overcomplicating things, but having a core set of ideas to come back to is really, uh, really important. But one point to make about Liz Truss that I think, in fact, she herself says regularly, she's not a natural communicator. She doesn't have the the sort of ineffable stuff of charisma that comes across on camera really well and really and really brings people, you know, like Tony Blair or David Cameron or Ronald Reagan in the US to life. She doesn't have that stuff. Um, she acknowledges it. Uh, and that puts her in quite an interesting position. It seemed to me she kind of doubled down on the stuff that she can do very well. So a single set of ideas expressed in a very unshowy, uh, kind of straight, direct way that actually really probably works for the audience that she's appealing to. So a good sense of the audience as well as uh, a bit of realism about where her particular skills lie, yeah. I think have probably done us some favours here. I think people like that authenticity as well. So she, I think, in the debate on Monday, even acknowledged that, um, you know, she's not not always slick and this isn't necessarily her natural environment. And actually, I think that was an, a good point of contrast for her um, when voters are looking at Liz, voters are looking at Rishi. I think actually her owning that and 
being quite open about it actually meant that um, Sunak then appeared quite polished in comparison and it didn't necessarily come off as natural. Um, yeah, that was my we, you know, th that whole idea that it's a problem that essentially it's a problem that Rishi Sunak is such a good communicator is a pretty wild thought. If you think about it, you know, it, he has all of the stuff that, you know, the best communicators have, you know, the people that we talk to that really connect with investors that really connect with their people and connect with their customers. They do the sorts of things that Rishi Sunak is doing naturally so he is a really good communicator and it's a really interesting kind of indication of where we are in the kind of political conversation and where communication sits in the conversation that it can almost be seen as uh, a vulnerability that this person communicates brilliantly well that he's able to kind of take the you know take a sound bite and he'll land it he'll look good on television he'll emphasize the right words he'll tell personal stories all of this stuff which is you know really important um for communicators anywhere um but it's become a vulnerability for him but i think that maybe there's almost a sort of broader point that this touches on that is we laugh a lot about the cliches of political communication you know, the, the, with the sort of eye rolling, pivoting away from certain things or bringing in a personal story. You know, political communication is often at the very forefront of the dialogue on this stuff. And I think where, where politics leads, business tends to follow two or three years later, maybe in, in terms of the, the types of things that we expect leaders to do when they communicate. So, um, you know, it's worth saying that a lot of the stuff we see as political cliche is actually still pretty effective in business if it's done in an authentic way. Yeah, I thought um, that Sunak on Monday actually seemed the less in control of the two candidates. And maybe we'll come on to Truss's body language and delivery, which I, mm. I think played a role. But overall, you've talked about him there being the slicker, the better thought of as the better communicator. Um, what did you think of, of his performance as a whole and, and how Monday night panned out for him? Well, he approached it as the underdog. And I think that strategically there was sense in him casting himself as the underdog in this situation. Um, there's strategic benefit from that. But, you know, if you look at his body language, he was leaning forward on the podium. He was kind of moving from foot to foot. He was kind of restless. There was this sort of scrappy do kind of street fighter energy to, to what he was bringing to it, um, which is probably pretty, pretty smart, you would think, given the job that, that he has to do, that he's not the front runner. Uh, and Liz Truss, by comparison, um, was pretty calm, pretty measured, um, really mastering that sort of relatively low energy, but very decisive, um, specific, straight-backed kind of delivery. Um, you know, I... I think he got, Rishi Sudak got a lot of criticism for um, online for appearing to interrupt and, you know, maybe in, in danger of being accused of that worst of things, mansplaining. Um, and I'm not sure there was much else that he could have done in that situation that sometimes being somebody who is uh, bringing a lot of energy and a lot of pep and a lot of hunger um, is exactly what you need to deliver in certain situations. And that, to me, felt uh, like what he was doing. I mean, 
there are a couple of interesting body language things that that I picked up from this. And, you know, when we're talking to clients, we often end up thinking about body language. You know, people wonder, how should I stand? Where should I stand? What should I do with my hands? What gestures should I make? When should I make them? Um, and there's a couple of interesting things that they were doing. They both have, I noticed they both have a gesture, right? R- Rishi, Rishi Sunak does what I would call the the thumb point, Okay, and this is not ideal for an audio-only situation. But if you if you put your hand into a into a fist and then you move the thumb on top of the fist, so it's kind of pointing out the top, that's a thumb point. And this was like always associated with Bill Clinton. Um, he originated the thumb point because it's a way of doing something decisive and authoritative. You know, you can point with that with that sort of thumb on the fist, and it doesn't look too aggressive. It doesn't look too domineering, but it makes you look strong and assertive like you're making a point. So I've noticed that Rishi has pulled that page out of the Bill Clinton playbook uh, and run with the thumb point. Um, Liz Truss, on the other hand, she did something I have to say I've never quite seen before. I don't know whose playbook it Well, it was was a, a, a sharp undercut almost, wasn't it, of the point? Right. It was like a sort of sideways bird claw spike. Um, I don't know what we'd call it, but let's call it the bird claw spike. And it was kind of coming out at right angles at sort of shoulder height um, and sort of spiking with a a pointed finger. Um, And I've never seen it before, but it seemed to work for her. And most importantly, it seemed to sort of fit with the general approach that she was taking. With body language, it's not about what's right or wrong. It's about what's congruent or what's incongruent. So, you know, w- when something's congruent, it's everything's pointing in the same direction. So what you say and how you look and the sense that you give your audience are all pulling in the same direction. And you have to say that for for all the criticism that she might get as not being a natural communicator, that Liz Truss is pretty congruent. You know, that her style, her message, her appearance, they're all pulling in the same direction, you know, towards Margaret Thatcher, obviously. Um, but Rishi Sunak, you might say, was a bit less congruent in that respect, mm-hmm. in that he was this a sort of attack dog, as we've talked about. He was the underdog going on 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 the offensive, interrupting, being quite kind of pugnacious, being quite challenging. But the problem is he's been trained for years to smile when he's on TV. So he was smiling when he was on TV while being aggressive or, or being quite sort of assertive and, and pugnacious. And to me, those two things weren't actually pulling in the same direction. And so that was a bit incongruent. And when you see incongruence as an audience member, you don't always know why, but something doesn't quite sit right with you. And it means that you're being given conflicting messages at the same time. Yeah. And you mentioned um, the comparisons to Margaret Thatcher there. And I think at at points that's um, perhaps not been helped by Truss's choice of outfits um, at various points during the campaign. I thought from from a delivery perspective, there were things that she was doing last night um, that we know Thatcher relied on. So the the pace of her voice, she seemed to be making a conscious effort to slow, slow down her sentences and appear more in control. The, the, the depth of her voice as well. So she had that noticeably deeper tone, I thought. Um, do you think that worked? It's interesting, isn't it? It's, you know, there's paying homage to somebody and there's 
kind of cosplaying them. And it sometimes feels that she's strayed into the latter category with the, the, the really obvious kind of costuming that, that she's done. Um, you know, there's loads of research that says that we as voters respond better to, to a lower register of voice rather than a higher register. So in that respect, um, if, if she has sought to artificially lower her voice, then that's probably quite a sensible, sensible thing. You know, what we know is that in the past, she, she has somewhat come a cropper in public uh, speak in sort of public speaking moments. You know, if you Google Liz Truss and pork markets, you'll see uh, this the, the extraordinary speech where it sort of seemed like it was the the uh, what had happened was it was like media training gone wrong, um, and she had sort of learned a bunch of techniques that weren't authentic to her, but she was really delivering them with with absolute relentless focus, and the whole thing was a little bit bizarre. So um, she's definitely changed a lot since then, but what the through line of this all is, is that she's somebody who clearly cares a lot about the way she comes across. She understands its importance. She thinks about it a lot. She takes a lot of advice on it, um, which, let's face it, is the right way to approach uh, to approach a, you know a, any sort of public uh, any sort of moment in the public gaze. Um, and it's exactly what we'd recommend our our clients always do. Um, she, it, the question of authenticity is an interesting one when it comes to, to Liz Truss because. I'm not sure I would fully say that what, what I feel is authenticity from that performance. It definitely feels a little bit, um, uh, maybe a little bit robotic, a little bit stiff. I don't feel like I'm uh, hearing from the same person you would hear from if you had a pint with her in the pub. Um, so not authentic quite in that way, but definitely congruent, definitely something that is uh, a single story being told with the words, with the appearance, with the gesture, um, with everything else. So it does work a little better as a package, I'd say. Yeah. I wanted to talk as well about um, storytelling because I think there's a um, an opportunity to judge kind of authenticity in the way that both Sunak and Truss have been trying to um, tell stories and tell their own personal stories as part of their campaigns. Um, and I know storytelling is something that we talk a lot about with our clients and a big part of the training sessions that you run with the senior business leaders um, that you engage with. But I think this is something that Sunak seems to have been paying quite a bit of attention to. So he launched his campaign with a video that talked about how his mother came to the UK in the early 1960s, and it was very much about his origin story. Um, did that carry on on Monday night, do you think? Did he use um, storytelling particularly effectively and authentically? It's interesting, isn't it? And it feels like it comes back to that point about um, politicians are in many ways doing all the right things. They're doing all the stuff that we would recommend clients do. Sometimes they do it so much and we get such exposure to them so regularly that we start to see the cogs, we start to see the strings being pulled and we we kind of um, call it out and we feel that it's not authentic. But what I'd say around storytelling is it's essential. Any leader thinking about how to connect with their audience needs to do it you know storytelling puts our brains in a slightly different space it um, helps us 
uh, connect emotionally with people, we know that when our emotions are engaged, we encode memories better. So storytelling is literally a, a better way of getting your audience to remember something. Um, and for all, all that we laugh at the politicians doing it, you know, you ask anyone in the UK, uh, where does Rishi Sunak come from? They'll tell you Southampton and about the, the, the pharmacy that his parents owned. And equally, Liz Truss's a start in, in the north of England and in Paisley. People yeah. can recall that. Um, the same way that, that Barack Obama, we knew, uh, started his life in Hawaii, um, that, you know, the, the most effective communicators do do this stuff of their own kind of Marvel superhero origin movie where they take you back to the beginning and say, well, this is where I started and, and this is why it's relevant. Um, I suppose there's something about storytelling that there are almost two parts to it. If you're thinking about using storytelling one way or another, and they were both illustrated to, to sort of greater and lesser effect by Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss. Um, the first thing is, if you're going to do some storytelling, which you should, um, choose the right one, right? So have the story, the message of the story, the takeaway, be something that aligns with the overall strategic imperative of the thing that you're doing. So, um, you know, if you're a leader coming uh, into role and you need to introduce yourself for the first time um, and you want to make clear your, um, your values, uh, choose a story that that speaks to that particular set of values. If you're trying to show show people that you're that you're leading, that you know you you're willing to be tough in tough times, for example, something pertinent that might be coming up, then choose a story where that's the takeaway, where that's the message. So the important thing about storytelling is is pick the right one. And I think Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak both do that. They both speak to some of their political ideas and help people understand. They act as kind of um, shortcuts, like heuristics that help the audience understand a bit more about them. So that's pretty good. But the other part, you know, part one is choose the right one. Part two is get it into the conversation in a plausible way that doesn't seem too kind of shoehorned. Yeah. And I feel like this is where politicians often become the subject of ridicule um, because they have the same set of stories. They try and get them in at any available opportunity and it doesn't always feel authentic. And I would say that, you know, if we're looking at the, the Truss and Sunak example, she actually did that slightly better that, that in the, you know, the, the BBC debate that we're focusing on here, there was a moment the first time she spoke to her to her childhood and her schooling was in relation to education and uh, the the importance of public finances being sound so that we can um, so that we can generate growth and fund public services in the way that she would want to and she pivoted to a story about her growing up and the educational value she thought she didn't really get in the 80s um, although the Conservative Party was in charge in the 80s so that was a slightly confusing confusing note um, but uh, Rishi Sunak, on the other hand, you felt that when he was getting in his story about growing up in Southampton and his parents working extremely hard and this this story of ambition and hard work and industry that that defines him um, and you know connects to conservative values so well, you felt that 
you could kind of see the cogs going that, oh, here it is. He's coming in with the story. Here comes the story. We're back in Southampton. Um, and it felt a little bit more um, shoehorned than, than Liz Truss's. So, you know, for us, it's always two things. Get the story right so it's, so it's sending the right message. But importantly, f- find the right moment to get it in so it doesn't feel like you're being too robotic and too calculating. I think that's a technique as well, isn't it, that um, we would think about business leaders using when it comes to tricky questions. So, you know, focusing on an answer to the question, but then using that question to kind of pivot away and and talk to something that you might feel more comfortable, might feel at home with a little more. Um, Did you see any of that, do do we think, on Monday? I know there was an interesting role that Sophie Rayworth was playing as moderator um, with the follow-up questions and analysis coming from the BBC's political editor, Chris Mason, and then economics editor, Faisal Islam. Did you, how did you think Truss and Sunak managed any trickier questions that, that came their way? Did they use bridging effectively or did it feel a bit artificial? Mm. Bridging is a funny thing, isn't it? Because but there's a, there's a sense that, that it is this sort of secret special source. Sometimes clients come to us and say, well, how do, how do we do bridging? How do we master this, this dark art? And it's, you know, it's a, it's a sort of dressed up way of saying, change the subject. You know, there's no dark art to changing the subject. We all do it all the time when we want our, you know, our other half not to, not to ask the question about the thing we haven't done. Um, so the, the, the art of bridging really is change is dealing with a question, acknowledging the question, dealing with it in some way, but importantly, moving on to where you're more naturally able to, to speak with confidence or, or where your kind of core messages are. Now, um, well, I, I suppose that the the interesting bridges were the ones that didn't exist in that in that BBC debate. In that, from Liz Truss particularly, there were two or three occasions where questions were put to her, and the the, the sort of uh, media advisor in me was saying, "Okay, you've you've dealt with that now, pivot away," but she didn't. On you know the question of her fashion sense and whether or not it it reflected, but you know she was asked whether or not she had very cheap earrings versus her opponent's very expensive shoes and what she thought of that. And she she didn't really have a particularly good answer for it, but she also didn't move it on and use that as a, as a moment to land some more messages, which I thought was strange. And equally on the question of whether or not um, outgoing Prime Minister Boris Johnson would ever serve in a government that she led, in a cabinet that she led, again, again, she lingered on it and gave a very short answer, but didn't move the conversation anywhere else. And as we always say, we say to people we're, we're advising, if you don't want to be asked anything more about that, then start talking about something else. The, the surest way you can get a follow-up question to something you don't want to talk about is uh, by giving a short, uh, in this case, slightly awkward answer and then going silent because the questioner will just come straight back and ask something else because it sounds interesting. You're um, revealing so, yeah. the dark arts, Dom. I know, I know. This you're, is extremely... all of the, the techniques. <laughs> I know, it's a very high-value podcast, this. <laughs> um, and just a final question for you. So I, I, sound bites as well. Um, mm. Another thing that we, we talk to um, business leaders about landing, um, you know, those nuggets of the conversation that will stick with their audience and um, perhaps in the context of a political debate, 
debate then be used on Twitter, might make it to the segment on the 10 p.m. news. Um, are there any that you think the candidates um, should ditch before party members cast their ballots? Any sound bites that you think didn't work or any that you actually liked last uh, on Monday? There, there weren't that many of them, I would say. At least there weren't that many that really landed well. There are a couple that I could have recalled afterwards if you'd asked me. And that's sort of the test of these things. Was it a turn of phrase that that was resonant enough? So it means something. Did it trip off the tongue in a nice way? You know, was it a very well-balanced phrase? Was it, uh, did it have some alliteration in it? Does it even rhyme? All of these things are the kind of the science of the good soundbite that that people can uh, can use to make a, a, a set of ideas more memorable. A couple that came from Rishi Sunak that I thought were memorable, and he's much more um, straightforward and effective at taking a soundbite and landing it. He does it very well. You know, in earlier debates, he was saying, you know, that's not fiscal policy, it's a fairy tale. And I thought, oh, that's good. It's that a was, bit alliterative, uh, a bit balanced. Landed on Twitter as well, didn't it? Um, there you go. And these, from that. It, it carries through. And and they know how effective those channels can be for, for spreading, um, you know, good, effective ones. Um, but a couple that I thought worked, he said, when talking about his parents, he, say, he said um, that how hard they'd worked day and night, they saved and sacrificed. And that's got that, it sounds really simple, but it's a very well-balanced set of ideas, day and night, saved and sacrificed. It's got two halves. It's got alliteration. It's got light and dark. So it works really nicely. Um, another one which was interesting was he talked about, you know, why an instant tax cut wouldn't be a good idea. Um, and he's tried in various ways to articulate that idea. But he came up with this phrase, which I have no doubt was was pre, pre-baked on the night, which was... Um, it would be a short-term sugar rush followed by the crash. So again, you've got two halves to that, short-term sugar rush followed by the crash. Um, a bit of alliteration in there as well. And and it speaks to this idea that we can all understand <laughs> of having too much sugar and then regretting it later on. But th- there's an interesting point actually about, um, this sounds like I'm going mad, but there is an interesting point about the political dialogue at the moment in the UK, at least, and food metaphors. Mm-hmm. Okay, bear with me. Okay. So he was talking about the short-term sugar rush. Um, you, it, certainly in the era of Boris Johnson, and you know there may be reasons for this, but in the era of Boris Johnson, there was a lot of food-based imagery and rhetoric. You had Brexit being sold as an oven-ready deal. You had the, the whole idea of the Brexit negotiation being cakeism, you know, that we could have our cake and eat it. There were all of these um, food-related metaphors that I've t- had a number of conversations with people in our business who think that that's very deliberate, that there's something very attractive about some, something that people can imagine eating. And I know that sounds strange, but earlier this very week, listeners in the UK who heard um, Liz Truss talk about free ports which is a pretty boring idea, will have heard that she talked about her policy as full-fat free ports. So again, this, this sort of language of food coming into the business of policy and politics in a way that doesn't seem altogether sensible, but has really paid off. So, you know, while short-term sugar rush is a great um, kind of evocation of the problem he's trying to describe or, or ward off against, or the problem he's trying to ward off, um, 
I would say that potentially he's running into risky territory with a food metaphor because the risk is that people will say, oh, short-term sugar rush followed by the crash. Well, I, I like a sugar rush, so that sounds yeah. fine to me. <laughs> so uh, I'd give him full marks for the construction of the soundbite, but maybe some of the, the subtler implications behind it might go in the other direction. Great. Well, that's a bit bizarre, but very interesting <laughs> nonetheless. I'm telling you, I'm not making this stuff up. You can have a look. I believe you. On that note, thank you, Dom. It's been great to have you today and lots of food for thought there. If you want to listen to more episodes of this podcast, Global Thinking, then please do visit our website, www.kexcnc.com or search Global Thinking wherever you get your podcasts.